Elton Trueblood, the 20th century theologian, said evangelism occurs when Christians are ignited by Christ. It is obvious when something's on fire because it ignites other material. A fire either will spread or eventually it'll just go out. So evangelism is spreading the fire of the gospel to others. This morning we begin a new six-part sermon series entitled Evangelism. The mere word evangelism, for some, it stokes us. For others, it scares us. Yet this morning I want to be clear. All Christians are commissioned to do evangelism. But not all evangelism looks the same for all Christians. It was Lee Strobel who said there are six shapes, forms, styles of evangelism. He describes the direct style. That's the person who is eager and willing to share the claims of Christ with anybody. This is the person who going door to door doing evangelism is perfect because this individual is convinced that every person needs to hear about the good news of Jesus Christ. Then there's the intellectual style. That's not to say the intellectual style is uh, different than the direct style, for the direct style is not intellectual. No, it is, but the intellectual style attempts to capture the mind in pursuit of the heart. This is a person who is going to use reason and logic and apologetics to communicate the gospel. Then there is the invitational style. This describes the person who just says, come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could he be the Christ? I just invite you to come and to consider the claims of Jesus Christ. The testimonial style is the person who incorporates his or her story to say, this is what my life was like before I met Jesus, and this is how I met Jesus, and this is what life has been like after I met Jesus, and if Jesus can save a wretch like me, I'm confident he can save you. Then you have the relational style. That's the person who says, I want to tell my dear friends about my best friend. So I want to earn the right to be heard. I want to be their friend. I want them to know that I'm a genuine friend. And then I want to introduce that friend to my best friend named Jesus. And then Lee Strobel says there's the servant style. This is the person who says, I want to show Christ before I even speak Christ. But what I do by how I live, I want it to be obvious that I am showing them Jesus Christ long before I even speak the name of Jesus Christ. Even with those brief descriptions, there may be one or two of those that seem to resonate with you. You think to yourself, that's how I'm shaped. That's how I'm formed. That's the style that best fits my wiring of how God has made me. The aim of this six-part sermon series is threefold. Number one, I want you to identify the evangelistic style for you. Number two, I want you to make a commitment that you're going to incorporate that style of evangelism in your everyday life because no Christian is exempt from evangelism. 
And then the third aim is that I hope that we will appreciate the skill set of other individuals here in this faith family. Because I contend that a healthy evangelistic church needs all six of these styles to be effective. It was D.T. Niles who said that evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. The operative word is the word telling. You've got to speak the name of Jesus. I don't care regardless of whether you're more direct style or a more servant style or anything in between. At some point along the way, you've got to tell what Jesus has done for you. You've got to tell the good news of the gospel. You've got to speak the name that's above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven on earth and under the earth. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God Almighty. So this morning, we're going to start out with the direct style. And it comes from one of those stirring stories in the book of Acts. I don't know about you, but whenever I read the book of Acts, I'm inspired by their zeal and their passion, their enthusiasm, their eagerness in evangelism. Not only am I inspired, but sometimes I'm indicted. Woe is me. But this morning, I invite you to draw your sword, take your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 4, I want to read the first 22 verses of that fourth chapter. Once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Acts chapter 4, I'll begin at verse 1, I'll conclude at verse 22. Acts chapter 4, verse 1. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest family. They had Peter and John brought before them. They began to question them. By what power, what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He being Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin. And then they conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they've done an outstanding miracle. We can't deny that. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again. They commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. 
For we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, the preaching, understanding, and obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. Your boldness for the gospel will result in conversion and conflict. Your boldness for the gospel will result where some people receive Christ and other people reject Christ. Your boldness for the gospel will result in transformation and opposition. It's inevitable. Jesus has always received mixed reviews. Some people receive him by faith. Other people reject him by force. When you and I are bold with the gospel, inevitably, there will be conversion and conflict. The truth of that statement is no better seen than in the story that I just read for you. The story of Acts chapter 4 is a continuation of the story that starts in Acts chapter 3. Peter and John are on their way to the temple to pray at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. This was the custom of the Jewish people. They went every day at 3 o'clock to pray. And as they walked towards that holy place, they were met with a question. A crippled man simply asked them, Do you have any money for the poor? This man that was crippled was brought to the gate called Beautiful. He was at the gate called Beautiful, but there was nothing in his life that was beautiful. This man had been crippled since birth, which means he had never been able to walk. He had never been able to stand on his own two feet. He never been able to run or jump. Never been able to play kickball with his friends in the street. Never been able uh, to participate in recess. Never been able to get from point A to point B without somebody else helping him. And so every day, someone would bring him to the gate called Beautiful, and he would eke out his existence by simply begging based on the generosity of other people, for he knew that one of the hallmarks of Judaism was generosity. So he asked every person that passed by, do you have money for the poor? He didn't know the people that were passing by. The people passing by didn't know him. But really, that was a mute point. He just wanted some money. So when Peter and John passed, he asked them what he had been asking everybody else. Do you have any money for the poor? Friend, if that were you passing by, what would you do? Would you engage this man in conversation? Would you give him some money? Would you talk to him? Or would you simply pass by as if he did not exist? Everything inside of Most of us, if not all of us, would want to say, we would stop and give this man the time of day. We would stop and minister to this man. We would stop and help him at his point of need. But let me ask you, how often do you help the homeless in Birmingham? How often do you help that man who's at the end of the exit ramp off the interstate? How often do you stop and help the person in need as she's seated outside of Walmart? Everything inside of us wants to say we would stop and help. 
but I wonder if we would respond like Peter and John. This morning, I want to give you three principles, three takeaways of the direct style of evangelism, and here comes the first one. Every person is an individual who needs to hear about Jesus. Every person is an individual who needs to hear about Jesus. Peter and John walked up to him and Peter said, silver and gold I do not have. At that moment, the beggar must have looked away. But what I do have, I give you freely. Now he's re-engaged. He's locked eyes with the apostle. And Peter says, silver and gold I don't have. But what I do have, I freely give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. For the first time ever, this man felt his legs. For the first time ever, he felt strength in his legs. For the first time ever, this man was able to stand on his own two feet. He jumped to his feet. He praised the Lord Jesus. Because from what this man had said, it was because of the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that now his legs were strong. He was able to stand and walk and leap and jump. And he was praising God for the first time ever he was going to be able to go to church. Wherever Peter and John went, this man followed them. Peter and John understood that every person is an individual who needs to hear about Jesus because every person we see is made in the image of God. Every person is made in the imago Dei, the very image of God. We, we bear the image of our creator. Because of that, we have intrinsic value and worth and every person is a sinner and every sinner needs to hear the good news of salvation which is only made possible through explicit faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So Peter and John were very direct on this day. And first and foremost, they knew that every person is an individual who needs to hear about Jesus. As they made their way into the temple, there was no small commotion. After all, this man was hooping and hollering. He was shouting because this was the first day in all of his life when he was able to walk. The first time he had ever gone to church. It quickly attracted a crowd. The people in the crowd wondered, okay, one or two things have happened. Either, number one, a mighty miracle has taken place, or this guy has scammed us all these years. Because isn't that the same dude that sits outside at the gate called Beautiful every single day? Didn't I just give him a couple of coins? I mean, something's happened in his life, or he's been scamming us forever. And somebody else in the crowd said, no, I don't think this is a con artist. I think this is a convert. I really think something happened in this man's life. And Peter and John began to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. The second principle is that every situation is a moment to tell about Jesus. Every situation is a moment to tell about Jesus. Peter understood this man's healing was not just for himself. Because in the book of Acts, whenever a person is healed, it's not just for the benefit of that individual. It's so that that individual can be used to bring glory to God by pointing people to the resurrecting power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter takes note of this. And he says, this man is standing before you because of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He was crucified. He was dead. He was buried. On the third day, God raised him from the dead. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power pulsating through this man 
man's legs. And so Peter connected the physical healing with ultimate salvation and salvific healing that can only be found in Christ and Christ alone. Now, that message captured the attention of the Sadducees and the priest and the captain of the temple guard. They gathered around the large crowd. They pressed in. They wanted to hear what was being said. Luke says they were greatly disturbed. The original word that's translated greatly disturbed means annoyed. These priests, these religious people called Sadducees, the the captain of the temple of the guard, they are annoyed, they're perturbed, they're upset, not because this man is healed. They're upset because Peter is connecting this healing to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's okay to do good. It's okay for somebody to get healed. It's okay for the lame to walk, but don't connect that to the resurrecting power of Jesus. These Sadducees, these priests, they thought to themselves, we thought we took care of Jesus several weeks ago. Because now this Jesus mania is becoming a Jesus movement. This, this unrest is, is now unraveling before our very eyes. They thought to themselves, we thought we took care of Jesus and when we, when we nailed him to a cross, we placed him between two thieves. We wanted to communicate the image and the, and the, and the message that he was a criminal. We thought that that message would cause the, 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 the attraction of Jesus to dissipate, but yet people are still trusting in Jesus. And they're claiming that he's been raised from the dead. Now, we can't find his body. We don't know where he is. But they're claiming that Jesus, who we crucified, has been raised from the dead. And every good thing that happens is attributed to him. We've got to put this down. We've got to put this away once and for all. And furthermore, do you recognize the cat that's talking right now? That's Peter. The last time he spoke publicly was on the day of Pentecost. He hijacked our Jewish festival. And he said on the day of Pentecost that, that what was happening to those men as they were speaking in foreign languages so that other people could understand the gospel, all this was done because Jesus was crucified and he was raised from the dead. And on that day, some 3,000 people were saved. If we allow him to keep talking, there may be other thousands of people that get saved. We've got to swing into action and do something. It was in the evening, so what could they do? They arrested Peter and John. They threw them in jail. The next day, they were going to make them stand before the Sanhedrin. It's Josephus, the first century historian, who says the Sanhedrin was that 70-member ruling council of Israel. It was a religious council, but nonetheless, it was the religious supreme court of the nation. People would have to appear before the Sanhedrin. It was like appearing before court. And the 70 chairs of the 70 members were arranged in a courtroom style, horseshoe shape, and the defendant had to stand on the ground. And most of the time, according to Josephus, that defendant would wear all black as a as a testimony of contrition, and that individual would just stare at the ground. Rarely ever would that person speak or make coherent sentences or, or say much. They would just simply, simply look down. And they would wait for the verdict of the Sanhedrin. 
Luke says that on that day, there was a, a great roll call. Annas, the high priest, was there. Caiaphas, John, Alexander, other members of the high priest's family. Please allow me to clarify something that Luke tells us here in the book of Acts. When he says Annas is the high priest, uh, the reality is that Annas is the high priest emeritus. He had been the high priest for a long time. But currently, his son-in-law, Caiaphas, was the high priest. It's the same Caiaphas who was high priest when Jesus was on trial and executed. Caiaphas, Annas, those guys that wanted nothing more than to put down this Jesus revolution. So when they saw that Peter and John, some of those apostles of Jesus, were standing before them, they were fit to be tied. In a scowling fashion, they simply ask a question, by what name, what power did you do this? By what name? Who gave you the authority? Who gave you permission? Who gave you the power? Who gave you the privilege to heal a crippled man who had been crippled since birth? Who did this? Who enabled you to do this? By what name did you do this? If Peter and John were supposed to act sheepish, nobody told them. They understood the question. The name of a person in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it conveys so much more than a mark of identification separating Harold from Jerry or Sally from Susan. No, a name. A name carried essence and character power by whose authority did you do this who enabled you to do this and Peter being filled with the Holy Spirit he speaks rather directly doesn't he if we're being called to account today for how a crippled man was healed then know this you and all of Israel this man is healed because of Jesus of Nazareth whom you crucified but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. The ancient word for healed is the very same Greek word as saved. What Peter is saying is that this man's physical healing and his spiritual healing is all bound in the same person. It is bound and found in Jesus Christ, the one that y'all crucified and God raised from the dead. And then quoting Psalm 118, he says of this Jesus, he is the stone you builders rejected. He has become the capstone. Peter does not have to tell these guys, hey, I'm about to quote from Psalm 118. They know the text. They know the scripture. They know this text of Psalm 118. And Peter has the audacity to say that Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the centerpiece of all civilization. He is the one that everything rises and falls upon. For either he is the rock of ages upon which you stand for salvation, or he is the rock of ages that you are crushed by in condemnation. But regardless, he is the centerpiece piece of all human history it is all revolving around Jesus either you receive him or you reject him either you're converted by him or you have conflict with him either your life is transformed or you offer up a great deal of opposition but everything centers upon Jesus he is the rock he is the cornerstone he is the centerpiece and then going one step further just in case Peter wasn't direct enough 
He says in verse 12, salvation is found in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. If you're asking us to give an account of how this poor crippled man was healed, let me tell you, he was healed physically by the power of Jesus. And he is healed spiritually by the power of Jesus. For salvation is found in no one else. There's no other name. There's no other way. There's no other path. There's no other road. There's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. The Sanhedrin took note that these were ordinary, unschooled, might I add, redneck fishermen. And they also observed these guys have been with Jesus. What an interesting insight. These guys had been with Jesus. They're as courageous as Jesus. Some of his conviction has rubbed off on them. Jesus stood boldly before religious rulers. These guys are standing boldly before the culture. They've been with Jesus. They connect the dots that if you, if you spend Time in the presence of Jesus, it will give you power to proclaim the gospel. If, if you don't spend time in the presence of Jesus, you'll have no power in the proclamation of the gospel. I'm not saying that you won't be able to speak. I'm not saying that you won't be able to put words together. I'm not saying that you won't be able to talk. Yeah, you'll be able to talk, but you'll just be a lot of hot air. If you want power... For the gospel, you've got to spend some time in the presence of Jesus. Being in the presence of Jesus gives power for proclamation of the gospel. This is true not just for Peter and John, but stop and consider it. The paralytic was in the presence of Jesus. And because of that, he jumped to his feet, picked up his mat, walked out in the presence of everybody, and he rejoiced, praising God. The lunatic named Legion, he had been in the presence of Jesus. And not only was his sanity restored, but also he was commissioned to go back to his family and tell them all that Jesus had done for him. The woman who was scantily clad, caught in the act of adultery, she was in the presence of Jesus. She knew that she should have been stoned to death. Oh, but Jesus gave her grace upon grace. And he told her to go and sin no more. Her life was changed dramatically because being in the presence of Jesus. Jairus was in the presence of Jesus. He was a synagogue ruler. His little girl was dead. He got Jesus to come into his house. Jesus gave the word to Lithicaum. And the little girl got up and she began to walk around. And Jairus was changed forever. He couldn't keep his mouth shut because Jesus had raised his little daughter from the dead. Zacchaeus had been in the presence of Jesus. He was so saved, he gave his wallet to the Lord. Half my possessions I give to the poor. If I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said, salvation has come to this house. For this man, too, is a son of Abraham. Peter and John were just fishermen. They were ordinary people. They looked a lot like you and a lot like me. 
but they had been with Jesus. And these fishermen had become fishers of men. The Sanhedrin took note of this. They dismissed Peter and John and the man who was once crippled but now healed. And then turning amongst themselves, they said, what are we going to do about this? We can't deny this mighty miracle that's happened in the streets of Jerusalem. It's obvious to everybody. People are giving glory to God. But we can't allow these guys to keep talking about Jesus. What are we going to do? Somebody or more than one somebody said, let's just threaten them to an inch of their life. Let's tell them they can no longer speak in the name of Jesus. They can't teach in his name. They can't preach in his name. They can't speak in his name. It's one thing if they want to believe in him. It's another thing if they want to get together on, from time to time and so-called worship him. But they cannot do evangelism. They cannot try to proselyte uh, other Jewish people. They cannot speak in the name of Jesus any longer. Seemed like a good verdict to them. So they called Peter and John back in. They said, you can no longer speak in the name of Jesus. You can no longer preach in the name of Jesus. You can no longer witness in his name about his resurrection. Friend, if that were you, how would you respond? What would you say? There's coming a day in our country when the ruling class will declare to men like me and people like you, you can no longer speak in the name of Jesus. The ruling class of America will say, if you want to follow Jesus, that's fine. You do that in private. But you can't do it publicly. You can no longer speak or teach in the name of Jesus. I believe that day is going to come sooner than later. I believe that day will probably come in my lifetime. When the day comes, when the ruling class of America says to the church, you can no longer speak in the name of Jesus, what are you going to do? Let me give you the third principle. Every opposition is an opportunity to choose to speak about Jesus. Every opposition is an opportunity for you to choose to speak about Jesus. I don't know what you would say to the ruling class. Can I tell you what Peter and John said to the ruling class? Judge for yourselves whether it's right or wrong for us to obey you or obey God. We just can't help but speak about what we've seen and about what we've heard. In other words, Peter and John are saying, uh, I know you're telling us we can't speak, but we got a bad case that can't help it. It's just the way we're made. It's just the way we're wired. It's just the way God has formed us. 
I just can't help but speak about what I've seen, about what I've heard. I've seen too much to be quiet. I've heard too much to be silent. God has been so good to me. God has healed me. God has saved me. God has transformed me. God has done a miracle in my life, in the life of his church, in the life of his family. Oh, I've seen too much and I've heard too much. I can't be silent. I've got too much of a case of a bad can't help us. I can't help but to speak about who Jesus is and about what he's done. It was William Willimon who said, telling spirit-filled disciples of Jesus Christ to be quiet is like trying to tell the ocean wave it can't break. It's inevitable. An ocean wave will break against the shore. It's inevitable that Christians must be eager about evangelism. We got a bad case that can't help it. Say amen. amen. We can't help but speak about what we've seen and about what we've heard. This didn't set well with the Sanhedrin. They gave further threats, but they dismissed Peter and John and Exhibit A, the man who was crippled that could now walk. They didn't know what to do because everybody was praising the Lord. On that day, another 2,000 people were saved. Luke says that by now, there are 5,000 men, not counting women and children. This is a massive mega church Jesus movement. And nothing can stop it because Jesus is greater. Jesus is better. Jesus is higher. There is no verdict that can stop Jesus. There is no verdict that can stop the people of Jesus because we have a bad case that can't help us. We just can't help but speak about what we've seen and heard. I realize that for some of you, uh, this sermon today, it really stokes your fire. You think to yourself, preacher, you... You're talking my language. I mean, the direct style is the only style. We don't need the other five weeks. We got this week. That's all we need. And there are others of you, and you're scared to death because you think to yourself, Pastor, I, I don't know if I could do those things that you're telling me to do when that day comes for me. Whether you are shaped for the direct style or the servant style or anything in between, there are some valuable lessons that all of us need to learn. For the direct style teaches us that every person is an individual who needs to hear about Jesus. Every situation is a moment to tell about Jesus. And every opposition is an opportunity for you to choose to speak about Jesus. I read this past week that evangelism is the deep-seated conviction that the greatest favor I can do for you is tell you about Jesus. It's the deep-seated conviction that the greatest favor I can do for anybody is to tell them about Jesus, that Jesus is the God-man, fully God, fully human, 
that he came to earth to seek and to save you. It is because of your shameful, sinful deeds that you should be separated from God for all of eternity. But Jesus stepped up. He took the whipping in your place. He took the punishment that you deserve. He drank every last drop of God's holy hostility and condemnation for you so that you could enjoy his salvation. He hung on the cross so you could be forgiven of your your sin. He hung there to pay your sin debt until he declared it is finished. They took his dead body off the cross, placed him into a grave. They thought it was over, but that was just the beginning because on the third day, the dead man began to breathe again. Jesus got up. And he gives you hope for eternal life. Your salvation is found in the person, in the work, in the activity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Evangelism is the deep-seated conviction that the greatest favor I can do for you is tell you about Jesus. D.L. Moody was a great evangelist. He had made a commitment that he would uh, tell at least one person about Jesus every day. According to his diary, it was a long day. He got home late from work. He ate dinner, got busy at the house. By the time he crawled into bed, it was well past 10, approaching 11 o'clock at night. And it hit him like a ton of bricks. Today, I haven't told anybody about Jesus. Beloved, if that were you, what would you do in that moment? I could tell you just transparently, I think I would probably say, Lord, forgive me. And I would say, I'll, I'll talk to two people tomorrow. And I'd probably roll over and go to bed. You know what D.L. Moody did? He got up out of bed, put his clothes back on, hit the streets of Chicago until he could find somebody who needed to hear about Jesus. I wonder... What would it take to get you out of bed to do evangelism? When was the last time that you invited somebody to trust your Jesus as Savior? Was it yesterday? We had an evangelism conference yesterday. The people took it to the streets. Five people accepted Jesus Christ yesterday. When was the last time that you asked somebody to trust your Jesus? Was it yesterday? Was it last week? Was it last month? Was it last year? Was it last ever? If you are not a Christian, today I, I urge you to trust Jesus as your Savior. There's no other way to salvation. There's no other way to heaven. No other way for your sins to be forgiven than for you to explicitly trust by faith the work of Jesus on the cross. And if you're not a Christian, then today I urge you, friend, please, we're going to sing a song. At the moment we start singing that song, you come forward, you take one of the individuals by the hand, and you say, I need that Jesus in my life. I've just trusted him to be my Savior. Friend, today can be the day of your salvation. But if I'm talking to Christians... All I'm trying to do is spread the fire of Christ to others. So if you're here today and you're a Christian, but your heart is heavy for your child, for your uncle, for your aunt, for your classmate, for your teammate, 
for your neighbor, for somebody you don't even know, and you want to come here to the altar and pray, I want you to know the altar is open for you to come and to pray. Maybe you're going to come and pray for yourself and say, God, please forgive me for my negligence when it comes to evangelism because no Christian is exempt from evangelism. So, Lord, please help me to tell somebody about Jesus. And maybe you just need to come and just own it and just lay it right here at the feet of Jesus and say, Lord, please forgive me for my negligence. All I know is that evangelism occurs when Christians are ignited by Christ. You can always tell when there's a fire because it ignites other material. A fire will do one of two things. Either it will spread or it will eventually go out. So evangelism is just spreading the fire of Christ to others. Oh God, please ignite your church for Christ. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. Lord, we give you this invitation. We pray that you will move and help us to respond in obedience to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.